may be seated. Welcome. Good to have you with us. Great to have you with us, even if you're only able to join from home online. I know this has been a a season of sickness. Maybe we say that every winter. It just seems like people have been particularly stricken, so I know a lot of people have been taking advantage of uh, the online option from home if they are sick, so good to have you with us either way. Uh, We're going to be continuing, um, as has been already talked about in our series in evangelism like Jesus, and I want to... um, It's been a good week uh, of some dialogue, actually, with folks um, from Terra for me to kind of step back and reflect on what some other introductory pieces may be that would be helpful as we uh, continue in this series. I had a number of conversations, both in the context of my tribe gathering, uh, the small group I'm a part of, as well as multiple different individuals um, throughout the the week, and uh, it helped to, to kind of clarify some of the things um, some, some of this will be re- reiteration. If you weren't here last week, some of it will be going a little bit deeper into some of the things that we started to talk about last week. First of all, I just want to emphasize freshly kind of the twofold way of approaching learning from Jesus and how to go about sharing the gospel, evangelizing. And firstly, the main objective of this series is to really be moved by who Jesus is. Behold, his beauty and become more like him before we even think about necessarily strategy and principles for evangelism. We want to do both, but we have to start with seeing Jesus. And I think of one of my favorite verses in scripture that reminds me of this, which is 2 Corinthians 3.18, which is speaking of Moses as a comparison, as he came off the mountain at Sinai when he had met God um, and was just glowing with radiance of having seen God. Uh, even if it was just God's backside which passed by him um, and not his full glory. And, and we're told in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all as Christians with unveiled face, because Moses had to put a veil over his face, it was so glowing, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. There's no clearer verse in all scripture that it's, it's by beholding Jesus for who he is that we become more like him, even in the way we go about evangelizing and sharing the good news of the gospel to the world. And then secondarily from there, we want to extrapolate some principles that we see from Jesus's own life and ministry for evangelism. As we look through the grid of presence, grace, and truth, which is that incarnational paradigm. Incarnation is just a fancy word that means God taking on human flesh, which is what Jesus did when he came into this world. Emmanuel, God with us. And we're told in John 1, 14, as we talked about last week, that what that looked like was he was present with us, full of truth and full of grace. So a lot of good questions came up in conversations this week as to what those things, presence, truth, and grace actually mean, what they look like, working together, how we're to live that out. Here were some of them that I hope will be answered in the context of this series. And we're even starting to wonder if maybe this should be uh, a topic that we revolve a Terra talk around just to be able to have some dialogue where there's um, unresolved questions for folks at the end of this series. But one of them is, um, what, what if you have presence, or what if, let me see, I don't remember what I meant by this little note, presence just about relational evangelism. Ah, yes. Um, so can you, uh, is, is presence, a presence, truth, and grace, only just about this idea of relational evangelism, this long relationship you develop over time? Or is it more nuanced than that? Are there more in varieties of ways that that can be expressed? Uh, Such as, can someone have a meaningful presence in a passing conversation with a stranger and that still be valid? And the answer is yes to both. 
won't necessarily answer all these questions, but that one's an easy one. And I, I hope we'll see the different examples of that throughout this series. Does grace always have to be evident in order for truth to be effectively shared? It was a good question that was raised. What if you're witnessing a context in which it feels like or it seems appropriate for just a, a, a sharp truth or what may be at least perceived as a sharp truth is shared and there's not some evident, clear way in which grace also is accompanying that? Another question, does grace, uh, excuse me, does truth always need to be shared if we are showing someone grace? I think the concern there is, well, what if we're just in an instance showing somebody grace and there isn't clear truth accompanying that? Are we enabling them in their sin or in a false way of thinking? It's a good question. Uh, Or is physical presence necessary in order to share grace and truth? I mean, that gets into the conversation of what do we do with things like social media and emails and text exchanges and things like that, which may seem honestly like a a modern-day unique instance, and in a sense it is. There's never been more disconnected communication uh, than what we live with today, but I mean, we've got letters in the New Testament that were written by the different uh, uh, apostles and followers of Jesus that were not necessarily personal interactions in the most immediate sense. Um, I think in most of those cases, you had preceding relationship. Uh, most of those uh, apostles had actually planted and pastored those churches before they wrote letters to them. But still, it's a, an example. This is not unique to today. What do we do with grace and truth? How do we share that if we don't have like a physical real presence with people? So these were good questions. I think some of them will be organically answered or directly so as we get into these different accounts of Jesus in the Gospels. Others may not. And so one of the things I'd ask is, as in your tribes or personally, you have questions that surface that you're wondering about. Um, in terms of what we believe the Bible teaches on this matter of evangelism, please reach out to any of the pastors. We want to kind of collect those, and if we don't address them in this series, that may give us warrant to do something like a Terra Talk, which is where we gather in kind of a family room setting um, and just have conversations about these things together. Uh, So uh, there's a few other things, two other things in particular since last week that I've thought may help bring some clarity to this conversation. One is just Probably a good idea to start with a definition for evangelism, which we didn't in so many words give a direct definition last week. I'm going to give you one now that I really like um, that was kind of crafted as some of the pastors talked about this together over this past week. And that's this. It'll be on the screen behind me too. Evangelism, as we understand it scripturally, is reflecting the gospel with a heart for others to love and trust Jesus along with us. And those were very thought-out words um, that are used in that definition, so it's worth unpacking, and so that maybe there's a deeper understanding of what we mean by that. So reflecting the gospel, the reason we use that language is because it leaves space for the gospel to be something communicated with both your words and your actions to other people. And and actually, if you've been at Terra for any length of time, that's not unfamiliar language. It's something that would accompany our explanation of the discipleship journey, what it means to follow after Christ, this thing we call a discipleship spiral, which is this on-repeat experience of God initiating by revealing himself to us. We have an encounter with him that he initiates, and then we respond in some way to that. Not always good. We, We respond by either receiving what he's revealed or rejecting that. Either way, you're going to reflect that to the world around you in some way. And that may be through words, or that may be through deeds or actions. 
Okay, so that, that's where that language comes from. It, it leaves the space for understanding the gospel is sometimes heard through articulation and the gospel is sometimes seen through deeds and works that embody what it means that Jesus is full of grace and truth better than even words can capture. Reflecting the gospel with a heart. This is so important to us because this gets down into the issue of motivation. What's our motivation and why we are sharing the gospel? Um, and that motivation can't always be seen, but it will, it, it, over time, tend to evidence itself for good or for bad. Uh, could it be that we are sharing the gospel to justify ourselves? Like, if I don't do this, then I don't know if I'm really a Christian. Could it be that we're sharing the gospel to make converts, uh, building up our tally, so it's something that becomes a matter of pride? Could it be that our motivation is about swaying other people to our view of the world so that we can bolster our own sense of security, that we're the right ones? That wouldn't be an altruistic motive. Is it about obligation, which would be something that is more of a burdensome? Like there's a godly obligation and responsibility that we're given throughout Scripture. Yes, I'm talking about the negative sense of like maybe similar to that first one, justifying ourselves. Like I'm not worthy. God doesn't love me unless I do this. That can creep in so easily, can't it, for us as Christians? And we're losing sight of the gospel at work in our own life and what it means that God extended truth and grace toward us. Or ultimately, is it about love? Evangelism has to be, must be, at its best, motivated by a love for Jesus, which in turn then produces a genuine desire for the next part of that definition, for others to love and to trust Jesus. We have something good And because we're convinced of how it meets a need we have and so deeply satisfies that need that we have, we want that for others. What in particular? To love and to trust Jesus. That's our goal for others as we share the gospel with them. Not just for them to believe in Jesus only, yes, but remember the demons were told in James believed in God and shudder but for them to actually trust and love Jesus because that's what compels us rightly to obey him and even to transformation, to become more like him. Beholding is becoming, right? And then finally, along with us. Well, what's that there for? I think this is actually so important as a part of this definition. Some of you may have heard the definition of evangelism as being one beggar uh, telling another beggar where to find some bread. That's good. It's humbling, right? levels the playing field, there's solidarity in that, that we don't lose sight of the fact that it's by grace alone that you have been saved. Just because you're on the other side of salvation doesn't mean that somehow you earned it to begin with, right? I've heard uh, before that uh, salvation is like a lifesaver that's been thrown off a boat that you're just grabbing onto. You don't have anything to do with that salvation. Somebody is graciously rescuing you. You know, believing yourself to have something to do with that salvation after the fact, it's kind of like, uh, you know, not remembering the fact that you told, you cursed that captain and said he had no idea what he was doing and jumped off the boat and said you knew better, and then him tossing you that buoy anyway, and then forgetting that that's how you were brought back onto that, that boat, by grace alone. So salvation is reflecting the gospel with a heart for others to love and to trust Jesus along with us. And that's kind of our working definition, we believe is informed by the scriptures that kind of um, underscores this series. The other thing that I wanted to provide some clarity on is 
last week we talked about, well, what if one of these three elements of what it means to be incarnational, present, full of truth, and full of grace, what if one of those things is lacking? What could that result in? And we talked about if you're, if you're present with people and it's only truth and there's no heart of grace there, then at, at best that could end up being combative and at worst that could end up being spiritually abusive. We talked about how if you're present with people and there's grace there, but there's never any truth that succinctly we just said that's pointless because at the end of the day, you're not offering any kind of direction for them as to the path to eternal life. And if you're full of truth and full of grace, but you don't have presence, then presumably what that looks like for us practically is Christians only hanging out amongst other Christians and maybe doing a good job speaking truth because we continue to need truth as Christians and showing grace, but never having presence with people around us, which ultimately is selfish. So I was talking with some of the other pastors, uh, Paul Gordon and, and North Adams, pastor of Terra North Adams. He's actually starting a series this week. And so he has this uh, chart he created. And I, I really appreciated the way that he framed uh, the absence of any one of these three things a little bit differently. And I felt a little bit sheepish afterwards. I'm like, ah, oh, my, my way of talking about it was pretty harsh. Although and a couple of people I talked with this week said, actually, that was helpful. Like it brought a level of conviction. It was kind of like the where we failed moment. But I like Pastor Paul's way of doing it because he's talking about not just where we failed, but what are we missing out on? So this is a different way to frame it that I think can be helpful. So if we are present with people and have truth only, but no grace, then at the end of the day, we're disconnected from the heart of God. This, after all, is what was so radical about Jesus when he came into the world. What was so offensive at times to the Pharisees and the religious people is this grace that they didn't have a category for. Remember in John 3, Jesus said he did not come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. One day he will come back as a judge of the world, but that is not why he came initially. And we follow after Jesus' example in his first coming. It doesn't mean we don't speak truth, but we don't come with a heart of condemnation and judgment. That's for Jesus when he returns, when all of us will give an account before him for what we have done, particularly in who we believed, Right? Then if you have presence and grace but no truth, well, you're disconnected from God's will, his ways, his truth. This would be, you know, preaching tolerance and acceptance uh, to people, but without calling them to actually submit their lives to Jesus, to submit their finances to him, their sexuality and their gender to him, their time to him, their appetites to him their devices and their gaming consoles and their identity and their ultimate purpose to him. If we're only present, full of grace, but no truth, then we're not actually addressing people's need for a savior or the cost of discipleship. And if we're full of truth and grace, but no presence, then we're disconnected from God's world. You may be living out truth and grace amongst God's people, but turning a blind eye to the world and that also is a shortcoming of expressing who Jesus is. By the way, this isn't much about intent. Presence is intent as physical presence. The question is, do we turn on our Christianity only around other believers? Or do we see non-believers that are in our life not as incidental, but as intentional? God has brought them into our life for us to have presence and be full of grace and truth in their life. So I appreciated that reframing. For those of you sensitive of heart who now need to be rebuilt, what are we missing out on? 
disconnected from God's heart if we're only present with truth, disconnected from God's will if we're only present with grace, and disconnected from God's world if we only have truth and grace and we're not present with those who need the gospel who aren't yet believers. Presence, I think, has been the diff- most difficult one for people to kind of wrap their, their heads around, and um, hopefully that'll become a little bit clearer over the course of, of this series. One helpful saying to keep in mind that has kind of long been in the vernacular of the pastors at Terra, even back to the days of Troy when there weren't other campuses. I remember uh, Pastor Ed Marcel saying that presence is the platform from which we get to speak truth and grace. Maybe that gives you kind of a helpful word picture to be able to chew on. Presence is the platform from which we get to speak truth and grace. You can be physically present in the proximity of coworkers, for example, for years, or a neighbor next door for years, and not actually have Christ-like presence with them. Um, Paul Miller, is a former pastor and author and minister, does a lot of good work um, on this idea in his uh, ministry called Seeing Jesus. It's something I spent a lot of time in in my sabbatical a couple years ago. Um, and one of the things I, I realized as I was going through that material and looking at the Gospels is how often we are told that before even Jesus ever says or does something, he, we're told Jesus saw them and had compassion. He hadn't even said anything yet, but he saw them. He saw their heart. He saw their needs. He saw their sin. He saw their struggles. And then that informed his presence Uh, giving a quality to his presence. I see you. And the other thing I would say too then, and the last note on the presence piece here, is quantity can be significant, but I just mentioned a moment ago, it's just as much or more about quality when it comes to our presence with other people, Christian or not. God can work through a five-minute conversation of quality presence as you share the gospel with a stranger, or he may choose to work through a lifetime of quality presence with a family member or a neighbor or a friend who's long in coming to trust and accept Jesus. So hopefully this will just become ever clearer as we continue to go through this series. We've got eight more weeks of it. So one other thing I want to say on a personal note before we get into John's gospel, chapter one today, and we'll look at the calling of Nathaniel, one of the first disciples, is... Um, Part of the reason why I'm so excited personally to get into this series with you in the Gospels and looking at Jesus' interaction with others. I shared this with the elders a couple of months ago. I didn't know if there would ever be a point in time where it felt appropriate to share at large. But just that I have this deep insecurity that every time I preach, I'm more like this opaque window than a transparent one to the beauty and glory of Jesus. Like, Like, you know someone and you can't convey it in a way that's satisfying. Like, I'm I did justice to be able to reveal who he is. And the analogy that I used at the time was I've been to Yosemite National Park out in California and a couple of times, and there's this beautiful valley vista that you get at this one point. You don't even have to hike to it. You just, it's, a, it's a one, the main road that goes through the park. And it's just breathtaking, awe-inspiring. It's impossible to convey with words. And it would be like we lived in the days where you didn't have access to pictures of it online, um, and, and then I had to come back after I'd seen it in person and then from up here sketch you a portrait the best that I could of what Yosemite Valley looks like. And I would just, you know, guys, you're just going to have to go and see it for yourself. I just cannot do it justice. And that's like a, that's a frustrating thing for me as a pastor when it comes to being able to convey who Jesus is and all his beauty and glory. And then um, I was reading a book called Encounters uh, with Jesus by Tim Keller. And he offered this analogy of his granddaughter, who's about, at the time anyway, who was two years old, who um, was at the point where there's a few things she could say, but like 
she was very interactive and she would point to things and she knew what she wanted to communicate but didn't have the words to articulate it and she would get frustrated. And he then likened that to his own experience as a preacher. And he said this and I'm like, okay, I'm not alone. This is so helpful. And you're not alone either because many of you may have even experienced this too. He said, certainly all Christians will feel like that when they want to describe their experiences of God. As a teacher and preacher, it's my job and greatest desire to help other people see the sheer beauty of who Christ is and what he has done. But the inadequacy of my words, or perhaps any words, to fully convey this beauty is a constant frustration and grief to me. Yet there is no place in the world that helps us uh, more in this difficult project than these accounts of Jesus' encounters with people in the Gospels. So I share this for two reasons. Number one, this is why I'm so excited to be back in the Gospels with you. It's been a couple of years since we were in the Gospel of Matthew. All of the Bible is God's word. All of the Bible is really, in a sense, from Jesus, who is the word. And yet there's just something about seeing Jesus in the Gospels. Even Jesus said to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There's a, a more direct access, in a sense, to the character, nature, and heart of God as we see it in Jesus interacting with other people in the Gospels than in any other place in Scripture. At least that's been my experience. And then secondly, the reason I share this is others, in this case myself, can only do so much to convey the beauty and glory of who Jesus is to you. If you want to encounter the Jesus who's impossible to do justice to with words, then you have to invest that time in the Scriptures yourself. And pray, God, open my eyes to see you for who you are. And I promise you that by faith and with patience over time, you will understand why Jesus is somebody completely submitting your life to. Okay, with that preamble, let's get into the calling of Nathaniel. In John chapter 1, verses 43 to 51, and you'll find that in page Uh, 1054 of the blue ESV Pew Bibles, if you want to use that, and it'll be on the screen behind me as well. John chapter 1, verses 43 to 51. When you found it, if you're able, I would invite you to stand as we read God's word together. John 1, starting in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. 
Father, open our eyes to behold and see wondrous things in your word today. In particular, the nature and character of yours through your son, Jesus, who is on display. By your spirit, help us to see. Help us to see how he was present with us, full of truth and full of grace. As you cultivate in our hearts a love for him and a love for others. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Before we even get to Jesus, there's something that we learn from Philip about what it means to be present and full of truth and full of grace. And you might be like, hey, I came here to hear about Jesus, not like people like me. But here's the reality. When we encounter Jesus, we immediately begin to reflect him to others. And you see that even in Philip's discipleship journey. Verse 45 tells us, Philip, after Jesus had found Philip, found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So how do we see these things in Philip, presence, truth, and grace as this narrative unfolds? Well, first of all, presence, Philip could not keep what he had encountered to himself. He seeks out someone he loves to, to share this with. Presumably, Nathaniel was his friend. This is what we do with the gospel when we really believe it. We don't keep it to ourselves. We can't keep it to ourselves. We want to share it with others. Just as an aside, not as much to do with presence, but worth pointing out, I think. It's funny that Philip has apparently already forgotten who found who. I don't know if You've ever picked up on that before, or even today as you read this. In the verse prior, we're told Jesus found Philip, but here Jesus, Philip says, we have found the one of whom our scriptures spoke of. It's subtle, but it's worth noting how quickly the narrative can flip in our hearts and minds as to who has done what in our lives, who's ultimately responsible. It's important for us to keep the right perspective that Jesus came and sought us out, that it's all by grace. We see Philip was also full of truth, at least what truth he had had access to to this point. He declares that they have found the one who fulfills the Old Testament prophecies, the Messiah. He may not exactly know all that that really means at this point, but he believes Jesus to be their Savior, and he declares this to Nathaniel. And then I think what's really powerful here about Philip's example of presence, truth, and grace is the grace that he shows Nathaniel upon Nathaniel's response to him. Because Nathaniel's response here is pretty abrasive, even if Philip was a close friend. He says, uh, Nathaniel, that is, listen, can anything good, good come out of Nazareth? He doubts his friend's testimony here. There's a couple things to note here. First of all, Nathaniel is apparently one of these guys who's fairly unfiltered in his speech. What he's thinking, he says out loud, for better or for worse. All right? Now, what we see here is that Nathaniel looked down upon Nazareth as some backwater town that couldn't produce anything good. And this is ironic because Nathaniel himself was from the broader region of Galilee, which was itself looked down upon by the big city dwellers of Jerusalem. And so here's an aspect of human nature that we look for places to tear others down where we ourselves have insecurities of our own. So it's important for us to note here that there's an element of pride and contempt in Nathaniel that's on display. 
It's a pretty dismissive response to to his friend's enthusiasm. Uh, He doesn't show a lot of faith in Philip's judgment here, does he? But here's where the grace comes in. Notice how Philip responds, responds to him. He says, come and see. Come and see for yourself. He could have gotten hurt. He could have tried to defend himself, but instead he just invites Nathaniel, come and see for yourself. It can be really hard for us as Christians to have our deeply held beliefs um, responded to with sarcasm and dismissiveness. Some of you deal with that, with your family and with your friends. I know. That can be a very, very difficult thing. At our best, it's hard because we love Jesus and we love them and our hearts are broken when they're not interested in this one who has changed our lives. At our worst, sometimes there can be an insecurity that creeps in that, well, if they think I'm crazy, maybe I am. And we need them to agree for our faith's sake. So we argue with them or maybe we dismiss and distance ourselves from them so that we don't have to feel that feeling. Or we can feel a false burden that it's on us to convince them of the genuineness of Christ and we've failed as a person if we can't do that. But maybe more often than we do, we just need to invite people, come and see. Come and see for yourself. What does that look like for us? I think that could look like inviting them to church. I think more importantly, that could look like offering to do a Bible study with them and let Scripture do the speaking. Encourage, pray with them, encourage them to pray, and ask for God to open their eyes to see who he really is. And if they really want to, he will. Um, Here's what we can offer people at the end of the day. We can offer them an account of how Jesus has changed our lives, our testimony. We can offer them the love of Christ on display as we serve them. And then an invitation for them to come and see for themselves. Yes, we answer questions. Yes, we will share the gospel with them, the good news that they need. But invite them to come and see. Jesus isn't inept. He's fully capable. He'll reveal himself to them if they're truly seeking. That doesn't depend, thank God, on you or on me. You just need to put their hand into his hand. And just like we'll see with Nathaniel, Jesus knows what they need to see and what they need to hear about him in order to believe far better than you or I do. Sometimes I think we're afraid to do this because we're afraid Jesus won't show up. But think about it. He did for you, if you're a Christian here today. If they're seeking, he's going to for them as well. There's a couple of evangels and principles that we can kind of extrapolate at this point, even just from Philip's life and example. Number one, invite people to come and see. Simple as that may sound. Maybe that's one of the more profound ways, things you'll take away from this series. At some point, you have to remember, we have to remember that Jesus is a real person who reveals himself to those people who want to know the truth. You and I are not Jesus. At some point, maybe earlier than you think, you should feel the freedom to invite them, come and see for yourself. Open up the scriptures. Trust that God's going to reveal himself to you. Second principle we can take away is that Philip knew where to find Jesus as he brought his friend Nathaniel to him. I think for you and I, what that looks like is continuing to spend time with Jesus ourselves, hanging out with Jesus ourselves. The more you do that, the more easily you're going to know how and where to point other people to find him. 
You may be able to point them to a particular passage in Scripture from your familiarity of Jesus as he's revealed himself in the Scripture, that they, that they would be particularly helpful for them. Or you may be able to point them to a good church that you know is preaching and following the real Jesus, or to particular people whose stories you know who've been changed by Jesus that may resonate with this person. You may even be able to point them to where in art and movies and literature, they can get glimpses of who Jesus is, even through how that's been reflected in those things. Know where to find Jesus. We don't have to have all the answers, but we do know where to, need to know where to find Jesus so that we can bring others to him, so that we can point others to him. And that comes from spending time with him yourself. Philip knew where he was. And so he's able to bring his friend Nathaniel to him. I should mention at this point, <clears throat> despite Nathaniel's cynicism, to his credit, he goes. He may have been so, uh, you know, just uh, disillusioned with the rest of life and the answers he's not been able to find elsewhere, that though he was prejudiced here towards Nazareth and had this negative attitude, he's intrigued. And so he probably thinks to himself, what do I have to lose? And even that is a mustard seed of faith. And so he goes. He goes with his friend Philip. Now let's look at Jesus and Jesus' response to Nathaniel and where presence and truth and grace show up here. The presence is obvious in one sense, and we won't always need to say this, but this exchange happened in person. But in a more nuanced sense, the less obvious one that we'll see in this scene and, and elsewhere as we go through this series, kind of the flip side of Philip knowing where to find Jesus, Jesus made himself available. People knew where to find Jesus. There are occasions, of course, where Jesus would withdraw and pray to be with his father, to be recharged uh, and rest in him and reorient his understanding of his father's will. Even in those cases, people tended to know where to find him and would interrupt that time. And the reality is, Jesus wanted to be with people, so he made himself available to them. So he's, he's offering his presence here to Philip and Nathaniel. And here's where we start to get into grace and truth. And the fact of the matter is grace and truth are so powerful in these two instances we'll talk about because of how they're intertwined. It's not like one instance of truth and one instance of grace that are somehow separate. They're, they're woven together here. And here's the first one we see. When Jesus sees Nathanael coming, he immediately uh, makes this remark that totally catches Nathanael by surprise. While Nathanael's still approaching, you can almost see or sense a smile on Jesus' face, a twinkle in his eye as he says, Behold, an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. Why do I say that? Why do I say a smile or a twinkle in his eye? I mean, it's speculation in one sense, right? But if you understand the context of what's going on here, what's already been revealed intentionally in Scripture in the verses before, it's good speculation, I think. Because this was about as nice as a way as you could say to someone like Nathaniel, characterize Nathaniel's attribute of being brutally honest out loud all of the time. What you see with him is what you got. He spoke his mind. He didn't keep his thoughts hidden. And while that's not always a good thing, we already talked about how there was pride and contempt in his thoughts on Nazareth. There's something to be commended about that. And that is what Jesus chooses to focus on. There's a difference that we know as we read the Gospels between the disciples and the Pharisees, many probably. One of the ones that I know is that the disciples, most of them were tradesmen. They were fairly straightforward and simple. There was not a lot of pretense with those guys. 
It comes out through the dialogues that they have with Jesus and others. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they were highly educated and intellectual. That in and of itself, I want to be clear to say, is not a bad thing. But with that, with their stewardship of those things, they often approached conversations with a hidden agenda, with motives that weren't entirely apparent, with veiled speech and manipulative speech. You didn't always know what they were thinking. Often, in fact, we're told that they didn't say what they were thinking. They kept silent, and in their thoughts, Jesus knew what they were thinking. In the scene in um, Luke chapter 7, it's one of the accounts we'll look at later in this series where Jesus is interacting with Simon the Pharisee and a woman who's called a sinful woman by Simon and his mind enters this uh, scene of hospitality. Jesus, uh, Simon had invited these guests over, including Jesus. And she had had some previous encounter with him. And so she comes in with a heart of worship and she breaks this jar of expensive perfume and puts it upon Jesus' feet and is touching him as she cries on his feet and wipes that, that perfume off with her hair. And Simon, all the while, is thinking to himself what? He's thinking, this man's no prophet. If he knew what kind of woman this was, he would have nothing to do with her. Feeling justified all of a sudden in his mind that Jesus isn't who he claims to be or other people claim him to be. But there's this reality in which Jesus knew what his thoughts were. But that's, po- that's poison. Right? It's a, we want to be careful with our words and not have no filters at all. But that's almost better if we just say what we're thinking and people know that at least than if we're hiding all those thoughts to ourselves. So that's just a difference to point out between the disciples and the Pharisees we have. And so there's something to be commended in Nathaniel about his lack of pretense. So notice that. There's a graciousness about this initial interaction Jesus has with Nathaniel. Jesus finds the good to affirm even before Nathaniel is a believer. I want to share with you guys just a brief story as an illustration. There, this is a while back that I encountered a father who was watching his son struggle to uh, finish a task that was difficult for the son, and gave, he gave up prematurely. And apparently this wasn't a unique occurrence. It happened rather often. And the father could have totally said to him, you know what, son, you're a perfectionist and you not, never follow through with anything. And there would have been a sense in which that's true from what I know. But what I remember him saying was something like this. He says, you know what quality is so good about you? You have this high standard. Whatever you want to do, you want to do it with excellence. You'll get there. But no one starts where they want to be. They start where they are. It takes time to get there. Do you hear the difference there? Where the father found something good to affirm in in what he discerned of his son, which is he wanted to do everything with excellence, and when he couldn't, he felt it was fruitless and he shouldn't even bother. So there's a negative aspect to perfectionism there, right? That you can easily just say, ah, you never finished what you start. You're just a a failure and a dropout. That's, That's not what he says. In something that was a double-edged sword that could have been seen as negative, he found the positive in it. And I'm sure that that was empowering to his son. And then, with Jesus having done this to Nathaniel, notice its effect. It's disarming to Nathaniel. He's taken aback. He doesn't deny that this is true about himself. Kind of the twofold meaning to what Jesus is saying and identify he, he knows about Nathaniel. He, he knows this is true about himself and it opens up him up to inquiry. He, he says to Jesus, how do you know me? And then comes this prophetic moment of truth Jesus speaks into his life. It's this miraculous insight that reveals Jesus' identity to Nathaniel in that moment. In verses 48 and 49, Jesus answered him, 
Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. One of the interesting and maybe frustrating things for us here is we actually don't know what Nathanael was thinking when he is under the fig tree. We are not told. But what we do know is that he thought he had been truly alone in the privacy of that space and the privacy of his own thoughts. He could have been complaining to God about something. He could have been on the brink of relinquishing his faith altogether because of some frustration in his life. He could have been devising some evil scheme, big or small. He could have been picking his nose. We don't know what he was doing. But based upon his response of belief and worship here, we know he knew there's no way that Jesus could have known this without divine insight. And so you have this powerful combination of grace and truth that yields this fruit of a kind of faith, maybe in its infancy, but faith. Nathaniel knows that Jesus is aware of his innermost thoughts, and yet instead of rejecting him, he found a way to affirm a part of him that was really a double-edged sword that needed to be sanctified, but that there was also something good about. In this way, that scene is a little bit like Jesus is calling one of the other disciples, the apostle Peter in Luke 5. So when Jesus, one of his first encounters with Peter, you may remember, the fishermen of whom Peter was kind of the chief of that group came in from a night where they caught nothing. Remember this story? And Jesus tells them to throw their nets out again. This is probably broad daylight by now. And I think somewhat reluctantly from the account, Peter says, okay. And Jesus hauls in this huge catch of fish, perhaps greater than anything they'd ever gotten before. And in that moment, you remember what Peter says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Because clearly he's thinking, if he can see through to the depths where the fish are, then he can see through to the depths of my soul. There's no part of me that he doesn't know. Now with Nathaniel, he had already tasted the grace before the truth came. Jesus knew what kind of man he was, and he found something to affirm in him rather than wholesale reject him. Nathaniel felt seen, not rejected. And then the truth comes. He knows me inside and out. He saw what I was thinking and doing under that fig tree. And it responds in faith, not recoiling like Peter. And with Peter's case, the grace came next. After Peter realized Jesus knew the darkness in his heart, Jesus called him to follow him anyway. He didn't agree with Peter. Yes, Peter, you are right. You are a sinful man. And you are right to want to get out of my presence, for I am holy. No, he said, don't be afraid. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Grace and truth, shockingly interwoven, which draws people to Jesus. There's a second instance of grace and truth. And that is, it comes after Nathaniel does this abrupt 180 all of a sudden from skepticism uh, to faith. Jesus actually, there's a mild rebuke you can pick up from him on in this response. He says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. I don't think that Jesus is doubting Nathaniel's sincerity, but he is gently drawing attention to this huge pendulum swing that had just happened from highly skeptical to giving him his full allegiance all of a sudden. Because Jesus also knows that Nathaniel, like almost all the other disciples, don't fully understand what kind of a savior he was yet. 
He's not the one who they hoped for who would overthrow Rome and establish his kingdom on earth in the here and now. But he's one who would overthrow the powers of darkness and sin and provide salvation for their souls. And in fact, that's what verse 51 is about here. This kind of strange verse where Jesus talks about heavens being opened and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's something that Nathaniel shall come to see and believe. And Jesus is actually drawing here from an account in the Old Testament. One of the patriarchs, Jacob, who had this dream in the wilderness of the uh, angels ascending and descending on a ladder from heaven to earth. Um, The angels were a sign of God's royal presence. But because of sin, what was going on in the stream is because of sin... There was a barrier between mankind and God. God was showing Jacob the ideal, what he was going to do, which was to reestablish a connection between heaven and earth. But the reality was that there was still a barrier to be crossed that had not yet been under the old covenant. Now Jesus is saying to Nathanael that the further evidence he would give him of who he was would reveal that he himself was the bridge between man and God to restore that relationship. He was the way, the truth, and the life and that through his death and resurrection, he would make a way back to God. But Nathaniel didn't fully understand that yet. And therein lies the grace here. Jesus knew Nathaniel was not a fully formed disciple at this point. But he accepted him for where he was at, and he invited him to follow him and learn more. And in fact, he promised that he would provide Nathaniel with even greater evidences of, for his faith um, than the one he just encountered to come. Here's what he's essentially saying in so many words to Nathaniel. He's saying, I'm not just going to give you this one miracle to inform your faith for the rest of your life. If you continue to follow me, I'm going to give you an abundance of evidence to believe in me over time, not just for your moment of conversion. I think there are probably some folks in here this morning and most of us as Christians who've encountered over the time a discouragement where we feel like we are running on fumes in our faith, and that this can be a source of encouragement and as a promise for you. Perhaps you're discouraged and feeling like your faith is on empty. Maybe it's been for you months. Maybe it's been for you years. God sees that. He knows where you're at on this journey. And there's a principle of discipleship here that's not just for Nathaniel, but for you and I this morning. And that is that Jesus promises to give you and I more fuel for our faith beyond what he's just given you at conversion. I don't know when that's going to come. I don't know in what form that's going to come, but the promise is there. And let me ask you, have you stopped asking God to give you evidence to strengthen your faith where you are weak? Have you given up hope? Do you know that you have permission to ask him for that? Many places in scripture. I'll give you one, Matthew 7, 11, when Jesus is talking about an argument from lesser to greater between earthly fathers and our Father in heaven, he says in summary, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Jesus will continue to give us fuel for our faith as we follow after him. Trust that. Some of you need to hear that this morning. All right. So we extrapolated a couple of principles uh, for evangelism from Philip, and I want to kind of summarize some of the things that you've heard come through even when we looked at Jesus, and then we'll close. First of all, make yourself available. This is something that Jesus did over and over again. He, just, he, he made himself available. 
Simply put, don't need to say much more than that. Secondly, affirm a person where you can. Nathan was a complex guy. We're given enough information to understand here he was not squeaky clean. Between whatever pricked his heart about what Jesus saw under the fig tree and even his comments about Jesus indirectly through his prejudice against Nazareth. And yet Jesus found the good to be able to affirm in him. There's going to become a point in time in our evangelism where people need to know their, their need for a savior. That they have a sin that is in need of being forgiven and can only happen through Christ. There will come a point in time for that. But that doesn't mean Nathaniel was not a believer yet. That there can't be things we can find to empower them with by encouraging this in you, though, does reflect the goodness of God. Thirdly, be open to the Spirit's leading. You and I don't know people inside out perfectly like Jesus does. Thank goodness. I don't, I'd not be a good steward with that because I'm still broken in the process of sanctification. But the Spirit may give us, on occasion, insight that opens up a person to the reality of God's presence in their life. And we talked about this in a series on the Holy Spirit as prophecy. Not in the sense of declaring new truths that don't already exist in Scripture, but timely insights that the Spirit may give God's people to speak into other people's life, Christian or non-Christian, that serve what purpose? 1 Corinthians 14, to strengthen, comfort, and encourage. Simply put, be open to that. Take a risk that if something's on your heart, you think, oh, I think this person might be going through that right now. I think this just comes to mind, and I wouldn't have known it otherwise, but I'll share this tenderly, humbly with them. And the power of that isn't, oh, you're so godly. The power of that is, you couldn't have known that God sees me. And their hearts may be opened to the message of the gospel in a different way. Fourthly, challenge and encourage people to a deeper faith than where they are already at. Just like Jesus did with Nathaniel, who in his own mind probably thought he had arrived. I've declared him to be the Messiah that we've been awaiting. And Jesus says, there's more. There's more to come. And I'm going to give you even more fuel for your faith along the way. So, encourage people that Jesus is going to meet people's needs, even of their faith, as they stay on his heels and they keep following after him. I'm going to invite the band to come forward, and we're going to continue in the time of worship with communion and song. And I think at this point, I just want to ask you to join me in prayer as we close our time in the Word here this morning. So, Father, we thank you. You have given us your word, not just these written words, but your son to look at this morning. We thank you for the perfect example of presence and truth and grace that we see in him over the accounts we have of him in the Gospels. We thank you for your spirit whom you've given to us to open up the eyes of our hearts to be able to see him. Lord, we know that like Jesus revealed to Nathaniel, you see through to our hearts. There is no hiding from you. And yet, that's what makes a promise or a reality, I guess, about you, like in Romans 5, that you showed your love for us and that while we were still sinners, while you saw through to our hearts and who we were, you sent your son Jesus to die for us. And we thank you 
for that truth and that grace. You are a holy God, and yet you've made provision for our unholiness. Would you help us today to see Jesus in all his profound beauty more deeply so that we ourselves may behold and become more like him and be reflections of his presence, truth, and grace to the world around us? In his name we pray. Amen.